Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour. Myself and Ash Sarkar are both back in London after a weekend in Brighton and the world transformed. We will be giving you all the updates from Labour Party conference today though. Ash, how was your how was your time in Brighton? Time in Brighton was excellent. I had some brilliant chips with satay sauce all over them. That was great. And of course, the world transformed was just full of creative energy, incredible ideas, and a sense of political urgency that was quite pleasantly surprised remained undimmed despite everything that's happened in the last two years. Yeah, I was very impressed with TWT. It was I was worried that it was going to be a bit downbeat given all the, you know, the situation within the Labour Party. It was absolutely, well, it's still going on. It's still a roaring success. Um, we are going to be talking, as I say, all about all the controversies that have gone on today at conference and over the weekend. First story. Keir Starmer might seem like a busted flush to the electorate, but this weekend his allies in Labour were celebrating as his package of rule changes were narrowly passed on the conference floor. The changes principally concern the election of future leaders and the increase of the power of MPs. In any future leadership context, contest, it had been the case that support from 10% of MPs was required for a candidate to get on the ballot paper. That's rising to 20%. I could explain why I think this is a bad idea, but I'm going to instead show you the argument made by a friend of the show, James McCash, on the conference floor. Do we allow the Parliamentary Labour Party to restrict our choices in future leadership elections, or do we have a genuine debate amongst a diverse range of candidates? Card vote 19 would raise the nomination threshold for future leadership elections to 20% of all MPs. Now, conference, while you were all out partying, I was having a good time looking through the leadership election results for the last 40 years. Very few candidates made 20% of MPs. In 1994, neither giants of our movement, John Prescott nor Margaret Beckett, would have made the ballot. In 2010, there would have been no Ed Balls, no Diane Abbott, no King of the North, Andy Burnham. And in 2020, we would have been faced with a very simple choice. Keir Starmer or Keir Starmer. Now, however we voted in that election, can we really say that the debate would have been stronger had we not heard the voices of Emily Thornberry, Rebecca Long Bailey, or Lisa Nandy? And there's something that those, there's something those three names have in common. They're all women. In fact, can you guess how many women have had 20% of MPs in the last 40 years? Just one. And how many black candidates? Zero. Our movement is strongest when our best ideas emerge through full debate. If we vote for card vote 19, our debate will be paler, maler and staler. Our movement will be weaker. So vote for democracy, vote for debate, vote against card vote 19. That was James McCash there proving. I think the only people who can really compete with trade union leaders when it comes to stump speeches are primary school teachers. Very impressive there. Now, I think that speech was persuasive to the CLP delegates in the room, to the members in the room. They rejected the package by 53% to 47%, but that was outweighed by support for the changes in the trade union section. They voted 60% to 40% in favour of the rule changes. The narrowness of the vote has led some to question whether it could have been swung by the suspension of multiple delegates in the run-up to conference. That included 
Leah Levain, who is a JVL co-chair, um, and so that's Jewish Voice for Labour, and who was suspended overnight on the day before the vote. So it's a fairly, fairly narrow result, and you had delegates who were being suspended on the day, on the, on the night before the vote. Ash, it's, it's not a good look, is it, in the run-up to a key crunch vote, which is going to entrench the power of your factional allies? I mean, what this speaks to is profound lack of confidence amongst the Starmer leadership about what he stands for and his vision for the party. Because if you were confident that what you were doing was the right thing, you would put it to the vote on the floor with as many delegates as possible. And you'd say, look at the mandate my vision for this party has. But of course, there isn't a mandate amongst the membership to disenfranchise themselves. That's not the opinion across most CLPs in this country, and it's certainly not the opinion of most of the rank and file. And so the only way Keir Starmer has been able to push this change through after the Electoral College resurrection was roundly panned and it didn't even get to the conference floor was to stitch up the process, was to exclude people who should have a voice, who should have a vote, and who have been, uh, you know, nominated by their CLPs to be representatives um, on, on conference floor have been unfairly excluded. Now, this is a man whose main pitch to the country is about honesty and integrity and trying to contrast himself to Boris Johnson. But he's not opposed to utilizing uh, undemocratic and, you know, quite frankly, the dark arts to get his way within the party to push disenfranchising of his own membership over the line to narrow the debate that's offered to them and make sure that you only have a very unrepresentative selection of candidates put forward which don't reflect where most of the membership is or indeed where a lot of the country is on key issues like for instance nationalization raising the national minimum wage or indeed sick pay Um, it's a way of curtailing and constraining the debate to make sure that power only resides within this quite weak faction amongst the Labour Party. I think it's disgusting. I think it it completely goes against what Keir Starmer says about himself. And why should anybody trust a man who can't even uh, be confident that he's got the backing of most of his own membership? Why should the country trust him? Yeah, I I, I think they're all important points i was i was asking a a left-wing organizer who's who's very good at sort of like counting delegates whether or not they thought these suspensions would have actually changed the result their answer to me was you know it's unsure but they thought probably not but actually it is kind of an indirect effect of the suspensions which has has done it because the conference floor whilst it is left-wing it's not in any way sort of completely compliant with what starmer wants as we saw by them voting narrowly against that rule change they are more to the center than it was sort of under jeremy corbyn and i think what what that shows is that lots of people have left the labor party that has put keir starmer in a stronger position than he otherwise would have been of course it was 60 40 in the trade union section to be able to beat that you need 60 40 in the members section the other option would have been if if unison had voted against those rule changes they were billed to abstain they changed at the last minute. Interestingly, what's going on in Unison, um, I had explained to me yesterday, was they have had their Labour Link committee elected. Um, so they're the people who are supposed to control how Unison votes at, at conference, but they don't get put into position until next year. So currently, it's the previous Labour Link committee. They're more centrist, 
And that's one of the reasons I'm told why Keir Starmer went for this vote this year instead of next year, because next year, the new left-wing Unison delegation will be in place. All very interesting. Um, lots of horse trading, I'm sure, led to that vote. Also in that package, which I think is very consequential, is a freeze date um, that's been put into place so that to vote in a leadership election, someone will need to have been a member for at least six months. So basically what that puts an end to is people being able to say, oh, now there is someone I believe in as a leadership candidate, I'm going to rejoin the Labour Party, or maybe I haven't considered politics, but now I'm inspired by this leadership candidate, I'm going to join and vote for them. It's a great way to grow a party. Obviously, that is how Labour got so many new members when Jeremy Corbyn stood in 2015. They don't want that to happen anymore, for obvious reasons, because they know that while Keir Starmer is leader, the left are demoralised. They want the left to leave, so they've got a, a membership which is further to the right or further to the centre, um, which is... Which is one argument why it's it, one argument that's been put to me is this is all actually quite a good reason why you should stay in the Labour Party, not say, oh, we might as well quit because they'll always fix it against us. It's actually the fact that, that they are driving people out that means they can win these narrow votes. Um, we will be talking, I'm sure, in future shows about sort of the, the implications of this. Who can get 20%? Who can't get 20%? What kind of leadership election are we going to be looking at in the future? going to be Wes Streeting, Angela Rayner. Is someone from the Socialist Campaign Group going to be able to get on? Um, it, it's definitely much more difficult than it was before this rule change was railroaded through. But for now, there's so many stories at conference. We're going to move on to our next one. Keir Starmer might have hoped today would see a shift away from internal battles and towards some of the policies he is promising to implement if Labour were to enter government. They include £26 billion per year for climate investment. However, any new pledges have now been overshadowed by a high-level resignation. This afternoon, Andy MacDonald resigned as Shadow Secretary of State for Employment Rights. He's done so because of Keir Starmer's refusal to back a £15 minimum wage. In his resignation letter, he wrote, Yesterday, your office instructed me to go into a meeting to argue against a national minimum wage of £15 an hour and against statutory sick pay at the living wage. This is something I could not do. Labour's current commitment is only to a £10 minimum wage. The trade unions have been pushing for £15. In his resignation letter, MacDonald explained why he felt now was a particularly poor time to be opposing higher minimum wages. On that, he said, We live in a time when the people of this country have a renewed awareness of how important the work done by millions of low-paid workers truly is. To have the Labour Party, the party of working people, fail to realise that is a bitter blow. MacDonald also made clear his disquiet with Starmer wasn't just down to his stance on the minimum wage. He said, I joined your front bench team on the basis of the pledges that you made in the leadership campaign to bring about unity within the party and maintain our commitment to socialist policies. After 18 months of your leadership, our movement is more divided than ever and the pledges that you made to the membership are not being honoured. This is just the latest of many. After releasing that letter, Andy MacDonald spoke to Sky and was asked if he believed Starmer had been acting in bad faith. Do you think Keir Starmer 
is a liar. No, I don't believe Keir Starmer is a liar. I know Boris Johnson is a liar because that's proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. You're making accusations of bad faith from the leadership. Well, why, why I would recommend that when we engage with our trade union partners, that we do so in a way that we can sustain. And leader after leader, general secretary after general secretary has said, I've not been consulted about these matters. The outcome of the, of the consultation is irrelevant, but I do not condone bouncing people into decisions about such important matters without going through that proper process. And that is what the movement is about. And we hold those principles dear. That was MacDonald speaking to Sky after the release of his resignation letter. You might have noticed that while McDonald's letter focused on the minimum wage, in that interview he could also be read as alluding to Starmer ramming through his desired leadership changes. On that topic, it's worth remembering the following quote that Andy McDonald gave to Owen Jones just last week. In the shadow cabinet, only Andy McDonald's, this is the words of Owen Jones, the shadow secretary of state for employment rights, spoke against the change of rules. He argued that conference was about presenting a vision to the country and unifying the party behind it. And this will do the exact opposite. Ash, I want your thoughts on this. If you, have imp if you want impact from making your resignation, then doing it you know, in the middle of Labour Party conference on an issue which people, you know, which is so sort of central to people's politics as a proper minimum wage. I mean, Andy McDonald, this, this is the right time to do it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Andy McDonald balanced it very well. So on the one hand, timing his resignation for maximum visibility, although it is said that he was instructed by the leadership to argue against a £15 minimum wage. So it wasn't just that Kistama wouldn't make the commitment. He was being asked to present the case against a fairer deal for workers. And, and, and that was um, anathema to Andy McDonald. But he also wasn't going as far as saying Keir Starmer is a liar. I think that Andy McDonald still very much sees himself as a team player. He wants a Labour government. That's why he uh, joined Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet. And now he's been asked to co-sign an abandonment, of not just socialist principles, but basic social democratic principles, ranging from these economic issues to do with the level at which statutory sick pay is set and also the national minimum wage, but also this internal matter of how the party is organized, to what extent are members empowered to use their voice to, uh, you know, be able to choose a leader and whether or not it's encouraged to invite the electorate at large to come and join the party. So I think that really it's probably been death by a thousand cuts for Andy McDonald. And it was simply too much to ask of him that he abandon his commitment to low wage workers in this country and argue against their interests and say that a 15 pound minimum wage or indeed statutory sick pay being set at living wage level is, is unreasonable. Too much can't be done. I saw you tweeting, Asha, an image of, of Keir Starmer with a banner, which was for £15 for McDonald's workers. So he was clearly, again, someone who was, who was willing um, to commit to £15 for low-wage workers before he became leader. And now he has become leader. He's, he's made a line in the sand that, no, we couldn't possibly be calling for a £15 minimum wage. I mean, it's also quite I mean, shocking that, that, that Labour's policy sorry, is, is still £10 an hour, which, as far as I know, the, the Conservatives have, have committed to anyway. Well, precisely, right? So Labour policy on this issue is completely indistinct 
from the Tories, which I think just from a basic strategy level, what you want is clear red water between the two parties. So you can give the public a meaningful choice to make rather than we're going to be Tory light and never actually do the things that you like about them all that well. Um, I don't think that that's a successful way for Labour to pitch itself to the country. But also the second thing being that Back in November 2019, so we're not talking a particularly long time ago. This is probably when Keir Starmer is thinking very seriously about his leadership pitch to the membership. He's out on the picket line holding a banner saying £15 minimum wage. And more than that, he also made a video where he said, I'm happy to support these McDonald's workers. They're not asking for the earth. It's just a £15 wage. So if it's not asking for the earth back then in 2019, and it's perfectly reasonable, what's changed now? Because I don't actually think that this excuse of, oh, the economic uncertainty of the pandemic is is a good excuse. What we've seen is that uh, low wages and poor conditions actually made people more vulnerable to coronavirus. It forced them into work because they were worried about keeping a roof over their heads. And what we've also seen is that all of those, you know, second order issues which emanate from uh, the fact that pay has not kept up the cost of living, housing insecurity, food poverty, all of these things also uh, worsened during the pandemic and again made people much more vulnerable. It's not something which makes sense if, again, you hold to basic, not even socialist, but social democratic principles of how you should organize society. So Andy McDonald's been very gracious. He said that I don't think Keir Starmer is a liar. I don't think Keir Starmer is a liar either. I think he's a snake and an opportunist and he will say anything for short-term gain and abandon it at the first available opportunity. I think what Keir Starmer really wants to prove is that he doesn't have to consult with anyone other than business. I mean, he, he seems to be, you know, we will work with business. Everyone else has to just take diktats from, from Keir Starmer. So I think what they are attempting to do today, you know, the, the announcement on climate change is actually quite good. You know, 26 billion, what was it, 26, 28 billion, 28, 28 billion a year over a decade. That's a lot of investment. It's quadruple what the Tories are currently offering. That is putting clear water between yourself and them. But they seem to believe that by offering that, they can just say to everyone else, well, whatever you want, we're going to completely ignore that. We've got our own thing. And if you are the leader of the Labour Party, you know, which is called the Labour Party for a reason, you do have to take seriously what the trade unions want. You do have to try and bring the membership with you. And Keir Starmer is doing uh, sort of it seems to be doing the complete opposite thing, which is just trying to bounce the trade unions into stuff and telling the members that they're actually idiots. And e even if you vote for something, we're going to just instantly tell the media that we're going to ignore that. They did that today on on uh, a motion to boycott goods from Israeli settlements, for example. Lisa Nandi, as soon as that was passed, went out and said to the media, oh, no, no, oh, God, no, we won't be doing that. Now, that is that's just bad political management. And it just seems... Odd to me. I'd have thought a £15 minimum wage would be very much within Labour's sort of mainstream at this point in time. And I can't really see why the Labour Party couldn't have backed the trade, the trade unions on that one. This, this isn't really, as you say, this isn't a far left proposal. This is a social democratic proposal. And the point you make about now being the time. You know, you don't see moments of crisis and say, oh, we couldn't possibly make radical change now because there's a moment of crisis. We'll do the radical changes when when we've recovered from the crisis and everything's suddenly stable. That is the opposite of how politics works.
right? The right are very good at this. The left used to be good at it, by the way, the 1945 government. You didn't get Attlee standing up and say, well, now isn't the time to do a national health service because we're currently rebuilding the economy as it was. No, that's the moment where you say, now is the moment that we're rebuilding, rebuilding the economy. Let's rebuild it in a way that we want it to look like, that the labor movement wants it to look like, and that the public wants it to look like. And be it on public ownership, be it on the minimum wage, on so many issues, labor keeps saying, oh, now's not the time to have these big conversations about improving people's lives. We'll do that at some unspecified time in the future, and it just seems completely self-defeating. Ash, before we move on to, to public ownership and another broken promise, do you think this will do any damage to Keir Starmer? Will he be worried about this resignation? I don't think he necessarily will be worried about this resignation, mostly because he's got Peter Mandelson and his acolytes around him saying, no, this is great. You've got Dame Louise Ellman back and you've got Andy McDonald out. This solidifies our control of the party, which is the same thing as your control of the party. So I don't think that he's actually got the kind of political awareness to see what this is doing to Labour uh, at large amongst the electorate. The fact is, is that this ta this supposed tactic of making a pitch to the same retired homeowners who've been voting conservative in their droves, I don't think it's going to work. There's no evidence that simply punching left, alienating the parties left, and also saying no to fairly sensible policies like setting statutory sick pay in line with the living wage. There's no sign that that is bringing back any of that cohort because, quite frankly, they've got divergent material interests from the majority of the working age population. These are people who aren't in the workforce anymore. These are people who, uh, you know, own their own home and often have paid off their mortgage outright. That's very different from being somebody who is in a very predatory employment market where they may be on a zero hours contract where maybe they're on the minimum wage and can only find part-time work and they're trying to piece it together it's very different from being somebody who is dealing with housing costs in the rental market as opposed to somebody who's paying off a mortgage now Keir Starmer is trying to make a pitch towards voters who aren't coming back they're not coming back that's not happening and there is a whole well, not even one generation anymore, anyone who's really under 40 years old, who've, who are having their interests completely thrown under the bus by this leadership. And while I don't think they're necessarily going to go and vote for other parties, there will be, I think, a bit of a bounce for the Greens, but maybe not a huge one for the Liberal Democrats or anybody else. What there will be is a lower voter turnout. So in those key swing constituencies where you do have more of an aging population, more former Labour voters who are voting Tory, what you need is a pretty good turnout amongst those younger voters in order to get Labour over the line. They're going to be staying at home. And you know what? I can't blame them. On the YouTube Super Chat, Saul asks, is there any way socialists can justify remaining in Starmer's shadow cabinet? Cat Smith, Olivia Blake and Sam Tarry at least should follow Andy and Walk. Um, I just sit on the fence on these sort of issues because I just feel like th this resignation at this point in time by Andy McDonald is very, very effective. I think you're, you know, you're in the middle of, 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 um, conference. This is an issue that people really care about. He's resigning on an issue of principle. I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think there's, you know, good arguments to remaining in the shadow cabinet and trying to influence it from within. I think Keir Starmer is going to lose the next general election. So this is basically about how do you position yourself to salvage the wreckage, Possibly he will resign before the next general election, but then it will be a battle over who, who takes over. So I feel like, you know, this is a long game and people are playing it in their in their different ways. So I'm I'm not really here to say Cat Smith should resign right now. 
I, I think there are there are many different ways to do this. Um, an update from today: um, there was a motion for proportional representation, and that lost due to lack of union support. So the divide here was actually massive. Constituencies back to eighty percent, unions were ninety-five percent against. Um, now that seems a little bit short-sighted to me. I, I think proportional representation would be better if you want a progressive Britain. Um, principally, I think it's because the evidence shows that in countries where you have proportional representation, you tend to get way more centre-left governments than you do in countries with first-past-the-post. I mean, it's partly because in first-past-the-post systems, it's much easier to say, oh, that left-wing party is going to raise your tax. They're terrible at doing the economy. Vote for us out of fear. And in a proportional representation system, it's a bit harder to say vote for us out of fear because it's, it's, it's less winner takes all for obvious um, reasons. And Rebecca tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour, Labour's debate will be paler, mailer and staler. Such a great line. So pointed. Shame Labour should have voted for greater democracy. It is a great shame. It is worth saying that Unison, as I explained earlier, might have a much more left-wing delegation next time around, which could mean that if you've got a uh, uh, sort of constituency delegates who are as left-wing as this time around, that changes could be made again to those rules. Um, so I don't think it's... To be honest, lots of people I was speaking to at conference were saying this is actually slightly more positive than we were expecting. I think that the left were clearly still a force in the Labour Party. It wasn't by any means a washout. In fact, the left won what could be quite a significant rule change. That significant rule change was that as it stands at the moment, when you have a snap election, the NEC can impose candidates on constituencies. A rule change which was put forward by CLPs and opposed by the NEC, so opposed by the party bureaucrats and the party leadership, that passed, which means if we have a snap election, then CLPs will be in control of who their candidate is. That could be incredibly significant because you know we need more left-wing MPs and the NEC aren't going to let any you know go through of their own right. And also, clearly, if there is a leadership election after that, after that um, general election, then if some of these constituencies manage to put forward people who have similar politics to the socialist campaign group, then you have the chance of someone on the left of the party standing and trying to inspire the membership to vote for them. Um, let's go straight on to our next story. When Keir Starmer stood to be Labour leader, the fifth of his 10 pledges was a commitment to common ownership. Back then, Keir said public services should be in public hands, not making profits for shareholders, and he pledged to support common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water. Like with most of his pledges since becoming leader, Starmer has been lukewarm on Pledge 5. On the BBC this Sunday, Andrew Mart sought clarification. Will you nationalise the big six energy companies, yes or no? No. No, you will not. This is what you said as part of your 10 pledges. Public services should be in public hands, not making profits for shareholders. Support common ownership of rail, mail, energy and winter. You, you promised that 18 months ago and now you're saying no. Why? That, I don't see nationalisation there. There is well, what, a huge, what, 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 else does, what else does public hands mean? There's a world... Of, well, well, public services should be in public hands. But when it comes to something like energy, we've got an immediate problem in the next few months that we've got to solve. And then when it comes to common ownership, I'm pragmatic about this. I do not agree with the argument that says um, we must be ideological. Look what so, happens. So what does common ownership mean if it doesn't mean nationalisation? Look what happens when we're ideological about this. Track and trace put into 
private yeah. sector, £37 billion. Pounds. Well, we were arguing it would be better in the public sector with local authorities. So I'd be pragmatic about it. And where common ownership is value for money for the taxpayer and delivers better services, see, then there should be common ownership. Poor, poor Ed Miliband believed you when you said that. And he was asked on Newsnight just the other day about this exactly. And he said, we're in favour of common ownership. Absolutely. Wait for the conference. But Keir Starmer said in his leadership campaign he was in favour of public ownership. We haven't changed that commitment. Maybe we haven't, but you have. Andrew, I've just set out the principles we will apply. We're not going to be ideological. I'm going to be pragmatic. I'm going to be what pragmatic. That what that, well, let me spell it out. What that means is that where common ownership is value for money for the taxpayer and delivers a better service, then I'm in favour of common ownership. That was a slippery Keir Starmer saying that contra to his pledge about bringing mail, rail, energy and water into public ownership, he would not renationalise energy firms as it would be too ideological. You might be saying, Michael, you're being unfair. He said common ownership in his pledge. Now he's ruled out nationalisation. They are two different things. There's no contradiction there. That's certainly the argument Keir Starmer made to Andrew Marr. There is, however, a problem with that take. When Keir Starmer committed to common ownership, he was committing to renationalisation. And put simply, nothing he says is worth the paper it's written on. It's worth noting Keir Starmer's current pitch to distinguish himself from Boris Johnson is that, I quote, I'm different, I believe in integrity, I believe in truth. Ash, none of that is true, is it? He is actually a liar and a snake, a little bit like Boris Johnson. You've absolutely got it in one. He is a snake, he's not trustworthy, and despite his offer of unity, competence and integrity, he has delivered none of those things for the Labour Party. But let me just take this policy seriously for a second, where he says, well, I said common ownership, not nationalisation, and that's a meaningful difference. I'm pragmatic. I'm not ideological. Let me just take this seriously for a second. Now, of course, there are different forms of common ownership. Of course, you've got nationalisation, where the state takes over a service. And then you've got other things like running something as a co-op. The thing about the national grid is that you cannot run it as a co-op. All right. It is a natural monopoly, right? Similar to the railway lines. It is one thing, one infrastructure. And really what we've been doing all this time is paying for different billers and different administrative services. Um, there are different offers about who's investing more in renewable energy, so on and so forth. But ultimately, that's the system of privatization we have now. Turning the national grid into a co-op absolutely doesn't deal with any of these problems that we've talked about in terms of the urgent need to decarbonize the economy, the need to keep energy costs low, particularly when we have a cost of living crisis and wage stagnation. And also we've got this, you know, matter of how are we able to best utilize the levers of the state in order to, you know, have both these things happen at once, of low costs of energy plus decarbonizing the economy. So the pragmatic response to that crisis, particularly when we are staring down the barrel of an er energy crisis, the combined impact of fuel shortages because of uh, a lack of, of HGV drivers in this country, but also the gas crisis, which is being driven by the price of wholesale gas going up, you actually go, hang on, there's a role for the state here, not just to provide bailouts, 
solve a market-based crisis with taxpayer money, but actually the state to step in to nationalize the energy sector. And then what you can do is you have the state guaranteeing incomes for people who work in fossil fuel industries while you achieve this rapid and just transition away from uh, fossil fuel-based energy, right? So that's actually quite a pragmatic response to lots of the things that we're seeing. Keir Starmer isn't being driven by pragmatism. He's being driven again by this PR kind of sensibility of what are those retired homeowners going to think? They don't want to see me as some kind of scary socialist. And also Peter Mandelson's going to yell at me if I say anything too left-wing. So I'm going to abandon these principles and also abandon any claim to actually existing pragmatism in favor of right-wing triangulation. There's nothing pragmatic about it, and there's certainly nothing honest about it either. I mean, it is ideological to oppose nationalization. It's just the ideology of, of the ruling class, so you can pretend it's not ideological. It's quite basic stuff. I mean, also he's saying, I, I disagree with people who say we must be ideological. No one's saying you must be ideological. People are just saying implement policies that work. Anyway, Keir Starmer might have no problem with going back on his word or abandoning socialist principles. Conference, however, had different ideas. Just hours after that interview with Marr, delegates voted on a motion drawn up by Labour for a Green New Deal, which included a commitment to public ownership. This was the moment it passed. Deal one, those four. And those against... Come on! Enthusiastic um, responses from the conference floor there, yet Keir Starmer's front bench were unmoved. This was Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves making clear this morning that when it comes to policy, conference is not sovereign. I would take a pragmatic approach. What matters is that essential services like gas and electricity are delivering for consumers. And we would look at that in the round. But I agree with Keir Starmer. This is not the moment to be looking at, at nationalising companies. We need to be focusing on the day-to-day -day bread and butter issues that are affecting people's lives. The fact that people can't fill up their cars with petrol and diesel in the morning. The fact that people's gas and electricity bills are, are going up by more than 10% next month. The fact that uh, lots and lots of gas and electricity companies are going to the wall. Um, Ash, Rachel Reeves, they're listing lots of problems, by the way, not really giving any solutions to them. But uh, I suppose what I want to focus on here is I think Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves think going against the membership is, is a positive thing. I'm sorry, can I just say, it is completely delusional to say now is not the time to think about nationalising the energy sector. We've got to deal with the day-to-day -day issues like the crisis in the energy sector. When are we going to talk about it then? This is precisely the time where you should be having this kind of discussion. So this tells me again that this isn't about pragmatic responses, trying to work out what the best possible solution to these crises actually, uh, what this actually is going to look like. It's about defining yourself in relation to some strange amorphous notion of electability, which is characterized by how effectively you can punch left. Now, that's not a pragmatic position, that is a deeply ideological position. And I think that this does relate to what you were just asking about, which is, well, is the sole uh, animating factor in the Starmer leadership saying, well, we're going to marginalize our membership and that's going to make us look good. And so we're going to ignore, uh, you know, what the vote is at a conference. Well, 
Yeah, that is what they think because they're stupid enough to think that that's what the public care about. No one actually really gives a shit about what's being voted on at conference floor. What they care about is, you know, the the policy platform and the vision for the country and the character of the leadership afterwards. Now, the fact is, is that all of those things have emerged weaker after this conference, not stronger. So public don't care about votes on the conference floor, but what's going on on conference floor can really make or break a political leader on the basis of what are they actually offering to the country you make that the public don't care about whether or not our leadership listens to their members i think is a very important one but the the people who do and i think this is probably what's really going on here are vested interests big corporations because they want to know that if a labor government enters power they will listen to corporations and business not the democratic structures of their grassroots members so i think this is really keir starmer speaking to britain's business class even to the murdochs you know, or, or, of the world, because he is looking for backing from the establishment, say, I am a safe bet. I am willing to go against all of those people who you are scared of. Therefore, you can trust me. Proof that this isn't because um, the public are really scared of nationalization. Recent polling from opinion showed 53% of people support renationalizing energy companies. Only 15% oppose it. So whoever Keir Starmer thinks he's impressing here. It's not the general public. It's not the average voter. Let's go to our next story. Often at party conferences, the real headlines are made on the fringes. It's in those more informal settings and with TV cameras far away that Britain's leading politicians let their hair down and even get a little tipsy. It's been speculated that booze was to blame for this controversial verbal flourish from Angela Rayner. You cannot get any worse than a bunch of scum, homophobic, racist, misogynistic. Go on, Those comments clearly went down well in the room. However, they created a lot of hand-wringing on social media about civility in politics. Speaking to Sky the following morning, Rayner refused to back down. Well, I think anyone who leaves children hungry during a pandemic and can give billions of pounds to their mates on WhatsApp, I think that was pretty scummy. Now, that is a phrase, and let me contextualise it, it's a phrase that you would hear very often in northern working class towns yep. that we'd, we'd even say it jovially to other people. You know, we say it's a scummy thing to do. And that to me is my street language, as you would say, about actually it's pretty appalling that people think that's OK to do. That was Angela Rayner doubling down on calling the Tories scum. However, Keir Starmer was less impressed. Well, Andrew and I take different approaches, and that is not language that I would use. Should, should she apologise? Well, look, Angela uh, said those words. Uh, she takes a different approach. To me, we have different approaches to how we get our messages across. It's not language that I would have used. You're a courteous man. Do you think she should apologise? Well, look, that's a matter for Angela, Andrew, but um, I uh, would not have used those words. And I, it goes back so to what are you going to say my central about point about... Um, the respectful way in which we have a debate. But look, at conference, there's a fizz of ideas. That there wasn't rallies. mighty respectful, was it? 
Well, there are, there, there are a fit of ideas. Um, there are uh, arguments, disagreements, okay. comings together. Angela has said those words. It's not language I would use. Conference is a fizz of ideas. A sign of a good political interview is that it's hard to tell which sentences were and weren't part of any briefing notes. Keir Starmer always fails on that front. Every sentence he said twice in that interview because he'd clearly been you know, sent out with a bunch of dull talking points to try and change the subject. I would not have said that, which didn't really convince anyone. Ash, what's your take on Scumgate? So look, what this is, is that this is lifted straight from the establishment media playbook. Because what this is about is by marginalizing the broader left, by which I mean not just what we would call the left, but anyone really right up to, you know, we're streeting by going, we're going to marginalize you and demonize you by refusing to discuss the political content of what you're actually saying and making out that you're a bunch of wrongers, that you're mean, that you're nasty, that you can't be trusted, that you're vicious. And I think that this is actually one of the things uh, which was the core of the coverage of the anti-Semitism crisis in Labour. It wasn't really fundamentally about racism because we know that the British media don't actually give a shit about racism. And that they don't give a shit about anti-Semitism either when it's time to demonize George Soros or, you know, make any other kind of, you know, horrible trope uh, against one of what they would consider, you know, their political opponents. What it was, was about being like, you can't trust this person, they're nasty and they're vicious. And what we see is that the same standard is never held to people on the right. You had a Tory MP making a joke about bombing Annalisa Dodd's office, and that has had nowhere near the same amount of media coverage. You look at the way in which Diane Abbott has been monstered from all corners of the press and also the Tory party in a way which was playing on sometimes explicit racism, but also dog whistle racism, trying to present somebody for the fact that she is a, you know, dark skinned black woman, make her out to be, you know, stupid, ignorant, um, you know, unattractive and all of these things. Um, those, those um, smear tactics are never held to the same standard as, you know, the left supposed incivility. Now, people are going to have a different take on whether or not you think it's appropriate for a politician to call another politician scum. Personally, I think it's a bit of a roadback from, uh, you know, Nia Bevan's lower than vermin uh, comments. And, you know, he, he, he knew what he was talking about. But that's going to be according to personal taste. The thing that really bothers me is the way in which Keir Starmer is uh, seemingly unable strategically to identify the box that he's being put in, being held to these impossible standards while his opponents get to say and do whatever they want about him, his party, and also marginalized people in the country at large, working class people, welfare recipients, religious and ethnic minorities. And the more in which you play into this flame, ultimately, uh, the, the more you play, uh, play into this frame, sorry, the more that ultimately you disempower yourself. And I mean, you know, people I was speaking to were saying what Keir Starmer should have said there, because I don't, you know, I don't think anyone really expected him to go out there and say, no, the Tories are scum. She was right to say that. that that's not the, the role he's playing. And I think quite sensibly, Labour do need to win some Tory voters. Calling them scum isn't necessarily going to be the way to do that. But it, he could have gone out there and said, look, that's just Angie being Angie. That's why she's such a brilliant deputy leader. She's a rabble rouser. And she has a lot of reasons to be very annoyed at the Tory party, right? I mean, you, you could give an answer which is much more natural, much more organic, which is a bit, you know, more entertaining to listen to. Keir Starmer's interviews are always just so 
dry and dull and they just make me feel depressed when I watch them. There was, we're going to move on from this story in one moment. First of all, though, I was reading write-ups of this controversy of Scumgate in the press this morning. And there were suggestions from sort of some Labour sources and other shadow cabinet members that Angela Rayner had done this on purpose to try and overshadow Keir at his Keir Starmer at the Labour Party conference. I think a much more plausible explanation is that she was really, really steaming drunk. Now, I don't have confirmation of this, but why I believe this is because of other things she was saying that night. So Dan Bloom, I think he's a Daily Mirror journalist. He's probably the person who got the recording. He was sort of tweeting out some of the comments Angela Rayner was saying that night. They also included, if you are what you eat, I'm a pile of shit tonight because I've eaten some pretty dodgy stuff. There was more meat in my speech today than a chicken kebab down in Manchester. Now, this doesn't really sound to me like someone who's playing cynical political games. It sounds to me like someone who's, you know, a bit carried away and pissed and having a good time. So I, I, I think Scumgate is probably not as deep as some people are making it out to be. Next story. Sexual organs and who has them is now an obsession of much of our political class. That means it's perhaps no surprise that the top news line which came out of Keir Starmer's set-piece Ma interview on Sunday concerned genitalia. The discussion was in reference to Labour MP Rosie Duffield, who has been accused of transphobia, including for tweeting that only women can have a cervix. Does someone who thinks only women have a cervix is welcome in the Labour Party? But look, Andrew, we need to have a mature, respectful debate about trans rights. And we need yes. to, I think, bear in mind that the trans community are amongst, you know, the most marginalised and abused communities. Um, and wherever we've got to on the law, we need to go further. And we want to go further on that. But whatever the debate is, it needs to be a tolerant debate. And I am absolutely sure that our conference will be a place which is safe for that debate to take place, and it is. Is it transphobic to say only women have a cervix? Well, it is uh, something that uh, shouldn't be said. It is not right, but Andrew, I don't think that- So Rosie Duffield should not have said that. Can you explain to people watching why she should not have said that? Well, Andrew, I don't think that um, we can just go through various things that people have said. Rosie Duffield, I spoke to Rosie earlier this uh, week, and told her that conference was a safe place for her to come, um, and it is a safe place for her to come. Um, and I spoke to others to make exactly the same principle. We do everybody a disservice when we reduce what is a really important issue to these exchanges on particular things um, that are said. The, the trans community um, are, as I say, the most marginalized um, and abused of, of many, many communities, well, and we need we need to make progress on the I gender mean, recognition. You could act. say that exchanges is how humans communicate and, and resolve these. Yeah, but things. Andrew, this debate is. Uh, I am very concerned that this debate needs to be conducted um, in a proper way, in which proper views um, are expressed mm. in a way that is respectful. Sure. In terms of the concrete positions that Starmer took in that interview, you know, it was a tough interview, and I don't think he said anything particularly objectionable. You know, I, I think actually I'd probably support most of what he said there. What did seem like a missed opportunity was that he completely failed to explain why it's offensive to tweet that only women have cervixes. He was given that opportunity. Can you explain why? And he, he swerved the question. And why I think that's a missed opportunity is because it's, it's quite easy to explain. Lots of people watching that will be completely confused. What is, it, what is the issue here? What, what are people debating? If he just says 
There are some trans men, people who live as men and are legally recognised as men, who also have cervixes. That's why it's, you know, it's offensive to some people to say that only women have cervixes. And that's why to constantly tweet that kind of thing is antagonistic. You know, I think he could explain that quite simply. And instead, he just doesn't have the vocabulary to do it. He, He would have done well to just explain that as opposed to just looking awkward and shifty. But awkward and shifty is better than outright sinister. This was Sajid Javid's response to the interview. He tweeted, Total denial of scientific fact, and he wants to run the NHS. Sajid Javid is the health secretary, and he is saying that anyone who has a problem with saying only women have cervixes is denying scientific fact. He is quite simply and unavoidably denying that trans men exist. He's also suggesting that Keir Starmer's correct position would undermine his ability to run the NHS. But it is, in fact, Javid who is going against NHS policy. This is from the NHS website. Should trans men have cervical screening tests? Trans men who have had a total hysterectomy to remove their cervix do not need cervical screening. Trans men who still have a cervix should have cervical screening to help prevent cervical cancer. Now, I'm not using this as evidence that trans men can have cervixes. We don't need the NHS website to tell us that. Why that is relevant is because Sajid Javid is trying to make out what Keir Starmer has said is extreme, when in fact, it's, it's NHS policy. It, it's what's on the NHS website. It's the most normal thing in the world. Keir Starmer there is not trying to change policy. He's not trying to change how people speak, the language we use. He is just stating what is already the accepted position of experts and indeed our NHS. Ash, I want your take. We know Tories see trans rights as a culture war issue, but hearing that from, that they can exploit essentially, but hearing that from the health secretary is is particularly disturbing, I think. It is. It's really chilling to see a health secretary exploiting a culture war moment like this, particularly because we know that referrals for transgender people on the NHS to have gender confirmation surgery have ground to a halt. Um, there has been real problems as well in terms of uh, speeding up the the um, numbers of transgender people who are able to obtain their gender recognition certificate. And there are more and more trans people who are forced to go for private health care because quite simply, they can't rely on the NHS to provide them with the health care that they very urgently need. So it's not simply about Sajid Javid being on the wrong side of a culture war. This, I think, goes right to the heart of what his job is. Can he be trusted to make sure that the NHS is delivering for transgender people as it has a legal obligation to do. I don't think that we can necessarily say that we can trust him to do that at all. I just want to add something um, to this, and it's about the reason why all this stuff about cervixes is so often mobilized by people who describe themselves as gender critical. Really, they're just people who are skeptical and hostile towards the idea of transgender people being able to live in safety and dignity. Um, The reason why we so often see the debate fashioned on these terms is because it is designed to try and make us, as cisgender people, as people who identify with the gender that we were assigned at birth, feel that transgender people, their ability to live as who they are, to have the support in order to do so, that is somehow an attack on how we relate to ourselves. So obviously, 
my experience as a woman is a combination of my social experiences and also how society relates to my body and certain biological processes. But there is a huge amount of diversity within the experiences of women. And that's before we even get into, uh, you know, people who are transgender, people who transition into and out of uh, womanhood. And it's also on the basis of race. It's also on the basis of disability. It's also on the basis of sexuality, you know, women's bodies and how society responds to them. You know, it's not all in one single way. So the minute you start thinking about how expansive that category of woman is, well, of, of course, there's space for transgender women. And of course, conversely, there's space for transgender men to exist in the category of man, you know, whether or not they've had a total hysterectomy, whether or not they have a cervix. Now, that's not that scary when you put it that way, because fundamentally nothing is being taken away from me as a cisgender person. All that's happening is that healthcare services are better able to reach out and speak to a marginalized community who very often aren't getting the care they need. But all of that is obscured when we are in this conversation about, you know, who has a cervix, only women have a cervix, oh, what about this, what about that? Um, fundamentally, it's not about trans people at all. It's an exploitation of cisgender anxieties, and it needs to stop. Yeah, now, I mean, it, it will only stop, I think, when people are able to explain what this is actually about. That, that, that's why I think this debate is so confusing to so many people, because it's always asked to politicians who don't really understand the issues and then just sort of get kind of nervous and awkward. And, you know, I think most people watching that exchange between Keir Starmer and Andrew Marr would just be completely confused as to what's going on. As a counter to that, I want to show a Labour politician, a Labour frontbencher, who I think today handled the question very well. This is Emily Formbury. That was Keir Starmer. Emily, uh, do you agree with Keir Starmer? It's something that shouldn't be said. It isn't right. Well, it's factually inaccurate. There are men who have cervixes. There are men who are trans and they're men. And so it's not, I mean, it's just factually wrong. It's not hard. It should not be hard to say that. But Emily Formbury there, incredibly effective. Um, Ash, very quickly from you, I've been starting to think that Emily Formbury would have been the better choice. She has the yeah, same, I mean, look, you know, I didn't vote for Keir Starmer anyway, but I voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey. I would have done even if it was, you know, Emily Formbury was on the ballot. But Emily Formbury, same politics as Keir Starmer. She was the one who could have been the, you know, I'm the sort of credible, but I'll have some of the lefty policies person. And she's not, yeah, you, should, no, you don't want to fall asleep the moment she speaks. No, and I, I think that one of the reasons why Keir Starmer obscured her in that Labour leadership race was sexism, pure and simple. Simply because he was a man, he was taken more seriously than Emily Thornbury, even though really they've got the same qualifications. She also qualified as a lawyer. Both represent, you know, central London constituencies, both very heavily remain. Um, they've really got the same qualifications and speak to or did at one time the same kind of political tendency. But the reason why I think his star more seems more credible candidate was sexism. Pure and simple. But you see, when you compare and contrast, that Keir Starmer's weaknesses are Emily Thornbury's strengths. She's direct, she's to the point, she's a skillful communicator. So I think that she would have been the better leader. Mm, she, doesn't, she doesn't seem apologetic to, to be there. Wherever Keir Starmer is, he's sort of like, oh, I don't really want to be here. I'm just trying to survive this interview. Uh, I hope I don't say anything that offends one of my handlers. You know, Emily Thornbury doesn't seem like that. Obviously, I think there would have been some risks having a Labour leader who'd worn that terrible blue dress with the yellow stars. But um, it at least would have been, you know, more, more watchable than the Keir Starmer leadership. 
We're going to end the show with some comedy. Matt Hancock has been fairly quiet since he was caught breaking lockdown rules and having an affair. Yet this weekend, he released to the world a video showing he's alive and well. Dare I say it, I think he was trying to show that he's positively thriving. Well, good to see you. You've done very really well. good to see you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, we've got through it, haven't we? You know, and uh, now coming out the other side. There we go, fist bump. How are you doing? Not too bad. How's business? Is it okay? More on the high street, and then there's more on Green Street. Yeah, exactly. Got to sort them out. Got to get people in. You're a big fan. Oh, that's kind of you to Always. say. No, yeah. not at all. You yeah. deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. It's Thank you. Now, in fact, you can control. I do. I do. Oh my God, you're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Keep positive. Good stuff. Nice to meet you. Take care. I'm all right. Nice to be. Nice to be. Uh, nice to be out and about. Yeah. You take it for granted, and then something like COVID comes along. <laughs> the last scene is my favourite one, where you can't even see his face, and he's just got the camera. like, "All right, mate. Nice to be out and about, <laughs> isn't it?" It's the single most divorced thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah. And I don't mean that, you know, I don't think that there's anything stigmatizing about divorce. I mean, everyone in my family's had one and I think that they were thriving for it. But it's giving off such like, oh, she kept the kids, didn't she? It's <laughs> nice to see that you're out and about, you know, a bit of a fresh start. Maybe you could take up cooking. Do you know what I mean? It's just got so much of that energy. It's killing me. Well, he's also got, it's, it's sort of like... Because obviously you pick the, he would have talked to a lot of people and you pick the ones that you think put forward the message that you want put forward. And the message he wants put forward is, people actually feel quite sorry for me, you know. Maybe you, you should know feel what? sorry for me. <laughs> do you know what, like that, I mean, that was the thing. It's just like the, the pity rolling off of them. Like it doesn't really say like, you know, I'm a big heavyweight political operator. But you can't help but wonder, was that what Keir Starmer was like when he was talking to these Darlington taxi drivers? <laughs> Yeah, because you can imagine Matt Hancock saying like, well, you might not like me, but there's these two people in this falafel shop in my constituency <laughs> who really love right. it when I come and sort of nod and awkwardly fist bump them. Um, <laughs> it, it is worth saying that that video got 1.7 million views um, and it was deleted today. So Matt Hancock has clearly changed his mind um, that that, you know, he, he no longer thinks that video puts forward the image of himself he is he is happy with. Maybe I would rather be hated than pitied. Well, maybe there were people <laughs> maybe that sort would be better. Of calling up his, you know, his ex and sort of saying, you know, can you be a bit nicer to Matt Hancock? Because he's walking around his constituency, making a real fool of himself, just like fist bumping people. The guy you've clearly really damaged his sort of like ego. Can you just, can you even take him back? Because people are getting not just worried, but freaked out. I wish Please, I knew what constituency Martha, let had. him see the kids. He's having a terrible time. He won't leave the ice cream man alone. <laughs> Amazing. I'm, I'm glad the, the video was captured before he deleted it from his Twitter. So, you know, that, that, that survives as an artifact of 2021. Um, Ash, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. So make sure to hit subscribe. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.